0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Gloria Mark. And she is a professor of informatics at UC Irvine, University of California Irvine, and also the author of this book. Attention Span, Find Focus, Fight Distraction, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness, and Productivity. Now, Gloria, this book is, I guess it's at once descriptive and prescriptive. I mean, it's scientific and practical. And it's part of what I think is a growing area of interest, which is the science of attention. And this is something which... To me, it's absolutely fundamental. I was teaching a course just the other night, and I started talking about attention, and I mentioned your book, and I said, this is probably more important than anything else you're going to learn <laughs> in business school, even though it is not explicitly the subject of any of our classes. Because without mastering attention, you pretty much can't do you know, anything else. And yet we don't, maybe you do, maybe at Irvine you've created a course out of it, but we don't really... Have a course, and this is stuff that people that you talk about as long ago as John Locke and William James. People were talking about attention. It doesn't have its own discipline. Does it even have its own journal? I don't know, but it definitely seems like it's worthy of departmental attention, course attention, and perhaps its own journal.
1: Well, it's covered in the field of psychology, but this is laboratory studies. But I think the kind of attention you're talking about is what we do in real life outside of the laboratory. And no, to my knowledge, there's not a course in that. I have taught a seminar on that topic, but that's the only one I'm really aware of.
0: Well, maybe we can start with what is attention? Obviously we're doing it all the time, right? I mean, we're engaged in it in various ways, but how is attention different from say consciousness or just theory of mind or thought? When we use the word attention, what are we talking about?
1: The kind of attention that I think most people think about is really controlled processing. Mm -hmm. So it's where people are actually putting in mental effort to try to comprehend something. William James, the father of psychology, said everyone knows what attention is, right? He's referring to this idea that we willfully and intentionally direct our thoughts to some particular thing. And of course, there are different forms of attention. There's automatic attention, where things capture our thoughts because of, you know, a blinking light or something passing in front of us, and it's automatic for us to look at that. So, that's a different kind of attention than what William James talked about.
0: So, I mean, we could think of attention the same way we talk about choice. I think the conventional view of choice and decision-making is that it's something that you do intentionally, but there's a much broader view of decision-making where we even talk about animals making decisions and plants making decisions, and plants aren't thinking and intentional in the way we talk about it. So, is attention just how we direct our attention, whether consciously or unconsciously, and is part of what you're trying to do maybe get us to be a little bit more intentional about what we're doing as opposed to you know letting our focus of attention be dictated to us by external causes and external stimuli
1: yeah that's right attention is goal directed so it it depends what our goal is if our goal is that we want to finish a report we direct our attention to that goal if our goal is to catch up on the news we direct our attention to that. And so there, there is this willful intent that underlies that. And yes, I'm trying to get us to be more aware mm-hmm. of how we're consciously using our attention as opposed to all these unconscious and automatic kinds of behaviors that we have when we use our devices, such as we grab our phone when we see it, we switch to social media Switch to news, switch to email. A lot of those just come from urges or a memory to do something that are unconscious.
0: But of course, without this unconscious element of attention, we would probably not survive. We do have a goal, which is kind of survival. And so that's why our attention will be drawn to, say, a potential threat and it's not intentional.
1: Yeah, it's believed from an evolutionary perspective that automatic attention helped us survive. You know, when we think about hunters and gatherers, their goal was to look for food, but at the same time, they had to be cognizant of what was going on in the environment. And so some movement in the bushes might automatically capture their attention because they had to be on alert for danger signals of predators or other humans. Yeah, so there is believed to be an evolutionary basis for automatic Attention.
0: Now you reference also Herbert Simon. And it's amazing how many podcasts I've done where Herb Simon comes up. I mean, he's just such an incredible thinker. He talked about cognitive budgeting, so to speak. And so a lot of what you're describing is familiar to economists, right? We would say you've mm-hmm. got a certain amount of budget, a certain amount of attention, right? A certain amount of focus. And then it's all about allocating it, right? And if you allocate more this way, then you have less available. This way. So I'm always wondering do we have a fixed budget? I mean, are we born with a budget or can we increase our budget? Are the things that you're talking about primarily about reallocating or? And I think you've done a lot of work on multitasking. So can we get better at this? Can we increase our attentional budget so we can kind of have our cake and eat it too?
1: Yeah, so what you're talking about, Herb Simon talked about this idea of bounded rationality. So there's just so much that human beings can take in and process. The theory, and this is a long-time theory that goes back decades, is that humans have a limited set of attentional resources. And we have to allocate these, hopefully, efficiently. Now, there's things we do that can increase our resources. So if you have good quality sleep, you're going to start your day with a lot of attentional resources. Taking breaks helps us replenish. Goodness, going on a vacation, then we really come back and our tank of resources is full. But there's a lot of things we do that drain our resources. Long periods of sustained focused attention can drain us Switching our attention. It's like having a tank that leaks when we switch our attention because there is a switch cost involved. And so the mental resources that we actually need to do the task kind of start drip, drip, dripping away as we switch our attention. So that's not an efficient use of our resources.
0: Now, this came up just beginning of this quarter in my mba program we have these two hour long classes and uh, when i first started teaching we would just go straight through and then about 10 years in the students had started insisting on a five-minute break in the middle of the two-hour class and so that kind of became the norm and then this quarter i was thinking that's a huge when you add it all up right i've got to shave out a good percentage of the teaching material in order to make this work and so i was always wondering what are the trade-offs there because on the one hand Studies show that having a break can give you better focus. But then there's these other studies that show that, you know, when you're distracted from the activity at hand, it takes whatever, 23 minutes to get back on track.
1: That's actually my research. (laughs) There you go, right?
0: So uh, It's all in my head somewhere. I've got source amnesia. But, you know, which is it? Am I losing my students and I've got to spend the next 20 minutes getting them back? Or am I actually recharging their batteries so that they can be better second half?
1: Yeah, it's a better payoff for you in terms of delivering content of your lecture. It's a better experience for the students for them to take a break and uh, allow their minds to refresh and replenish. Of course, I give lectures too, and I want to pack as much information as I can into these, but we have to realize that the experience for the students may not be what we, as the people delivering the material, want it to be. So, it's really important to give students a chance to take a break. And I mean, this is the current thinking about lectures these days is to try to mix things up. You lecture for a while, you have interactive experiences for students, you show some media, just kind of mix things up so that they can pay attention better. It's hard for students to pay attention for a two-hour block.
0: Well, I think part of your work is suggesting that the attentional resources of people have changed over time. And so while 50 minutes and then a break is now the norm, perhaps in a few years, it's going to be 30 minutes and then 15 minutes and then five minutes. And, you know, when I read about Abraham Lincoln giving these three-hour speeches or Stalin as <laughs> well, I mean, he didn't have much of a choice. He had to pay attention to him. But, you know, going back to the ancient Greeks, people would speak for a lot longer periods of time. People would stay engaged for much longer periods of time. Is it just that they wanted to take breaks and weren't allowed to? Or is there something actually happening to people's capacity for concentrated and engaged attention?
1: Yeah, I think we've been seeing a cultural shift. And, you know, certainly there used to be expectations that people would speak longer, that we would have longer stretches of content to take in. And now the cultural practice has changed. So things are delivered in shorter snippets. There's a lot behind this cultural shift. You know, one of the things I write about in the book is how this cultural shift is manifest in film and TV yeah. shot lengths When film and TV first started out, shot lengths used to be a lot longer, and now they've shortened to an average of about four seconds. Mm -hmm. And you see this very clearly if you're watching a film or TV, turn the audio off, and you just see these shot lengths Mm -hmm. changing. It didn't used to be that way. Now, the question is, the causality, what's causing it, we don't know, right? We don't know if film and TV shot links might be affecting our attention spans. Mm. We don't know. It could be that film, TV, and directors are influenced by their own short attention spans. It could be that they're designing it because they think this is what will grab our attention. We don't know the causality, but we do see these parallel trends. And of course, there's many reasons for this cultural shift, but social media, it constrains us to construct content in terms of short snippets and to consume content in terms of short snippets. So that's another kind of cultural practice that we've become accustomed to. YouTube videos are also designed with this intent that people have short attention spans. So delivering content in terms of cutting out ums and ohs and pauses so that you can Pack more in so that you're not going to lose people if they have to watch a lengthy YouTube video.
0: Well, we're going to do that with your audio on <laughs> this podcast, just so you know. But look, I mean, human brains haven't changed, right, that much in a couple thousand years. And so you got to believe that if you went back and showed Marcus Aurelius some TikTok videos, <laughs> or you plopped down the game of Tetris into ancient Greece, that, you know, it would find a lot of users. So, I mean, could it be just that what was driving this change in average length of a shot in film is that we now just have better editing technology and that the people back in the 30s would have loved to have these rapid cuts but the filmmakers didn't have the tools they had to use actual film and scissors and push buttons
1: that's right so there was a great innovation in editing software that enabled editors to be able to make cuts to rearrange scenes in minutes, if not seconds, whereas previously it would take days. And like you said, people had to actually look at the film and find the place to cut. They had to use a special machine to do it. And now this can be done. People can try out different shots, so it can be done even spontaneously. That's a big factor for pushing these short shot lengths.
0: Well, even though our brains might not have changed. What's going on in the brains might have changed. And so I was wondering, you talked about distractedness as a personality trait, and presumably personality traits can change over time. And you could think of it like an immune system, right? You have a population that is vulnerable to a disease and a population that has a relatively strong immune system against that disease. Could it be that the people 100 years ago, if they were presented with the opportunity to spend all day on social media, they wouldn't have done so simply because their capacity to refrain from doing so was stronger. You know, that muscle of resisting distractedness. Is that a muscle you can exercise? Is that uh, a capacity that you can develop?
1: I think it is. People can gain agency. And we know that because people are able to control urges and self-regulate for substance abuse and cigarette smoking and diets so people can change you asked earlier about can personality change the thinking about personality has gone back and forth and walter michelle who was a professor of mine at columbia and who is known for his marshmallow Mm -hmm. studies he argued that personality was contextual, so it changed with context. So, it's more or less stable, but your context can actually modify the way your personality is exhibited. So, I could be an extrovert among my friends, but if I'm in a group of stockbrokers, I might be an introvert, right? Mm -hmm. So, the context is basically shaping the way my personality is expressed. But more or less, I would say someone who has good self-regulation skills to not eat dessert at a buffet probably has pretty good self-regulation skills to not be checking email or news or social media when they want to get work done.
0: Yeah. And you talk about neuroergonomics. I had never heard this term before, but I thought it was a really cool idea. Could you talk about neuroergonomics? And you know how most offices now have ergonomics people and you do like an ergonomics survey. and You look around your office and you diagnose it for ergonomic compatibility. What would a science of neuroergonomics look like?
1: Yeah. So this uses unobtrusive types of sensors to track people's brain activity as they do work. And the goal of this is to measure their cognitive load. So, you know, how much mental effort they're expending when they do different kinds of work it's a lot more precise to use a sensor to measure this than to have a self-report right Mm -hmm. because there's all kinds of biases when people
0: self-report so wait so this would be in your research you ping people at various points in time and ask them questions about their attention and this would be a way of Rather than asking them track through the, I think you you had the cameras on people's heads and so forth, but that wasn't measuring their brainwaves or no. measuring effort in that way, right?
1: No, you're right. That was using a technique called experience sampling, yeah. where you would probe people and you ask them a question in the moment, and you get a timestamp so that you can get a sense of a person's subjective experience about something over the course of a day. The kinds of instruments that people use in neuroergonomics are things like PET scans, although then people, of course, are confined to a machine, or they might use fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging. People can't, when they're using these kinds of instruments, they can't really move around freely. So the kind of work that you're measuring is quite limited. There's other techniques. There's something called transcranial Doppler sonography, which is used, and that's in settings that are a little bit less restrictive, like airline cockpits, or you could do that in a simulated office environment. But I expect that there's going to be new technology coming along that's going to enable people to really do their natural work and yet to be able to measure cognitive load in just what people are doing in in their normal lives
0: well you also look at things like heart rate right because you said that a lot of what you're talking about correlates with stress so multitasking Mm -hmm. can lead to stress right and stress in large quantities is not good. I mean, it can be good. We also talk about Yerkes-Dodson and how there's an optimal amount of stress that you need. But what is it about multitasking that generates stress. You know, when we talk about flow, and you spend a lot of time in the book talking about flow, is flow necessarily involving a single task? When I think about when I worked in a restaurant and I would feel like I was in a state of flow, but that meant that I was preparing, you know, a dozen orders at the same time. And I had, I was juggling all of this stuff in my head and a sense of accomplishment from all of that. Processing, spinning all those wheels, it was exhilarating. And yet, we also associate spinning a gazillion wheels and task switching with a strong sense of stress and anxiety. So, is there a fine line between the two? When does flow turn into anxiety? And what's the relationship with multitasking?
1: Yeah. So, let's start with multitasking. When people multitask, first of all, it's not humanly possible to do two things at the same time that require effort. If one thing you're doing is automatic, using automatic processing, yes, you can do another thing that requires effort. So you can drive, which is automatic, and you can have a conversation. But as soon as a car swerves in front of you, you stop talking, and all of a sudden your attention becomes effortful, because you want to avoid hitting that car. So when people are Multitasking, they're actually shifting their attention rapidly between two different tasks. Now, why does it cause stress? First of all, when we're switching our attention, there's a switch cost. And the best way I can describe it is to use an analogy of an internal whiteboard that we have. So every task that we do, we have a mental model of that task. So if I'm writing something, I have a mental model. What's the information I need? What's the word choice I want to use? Who are the people involved Mm -hmm. if I'm doing analysis? And then I suddenly switch and I do a different task. So it's like I have a whiteboard inside of my mind that I'm erasing all that information and I'm writing this new mental model, this new thing that I'm doing. And I do that for a while and then suddenly I switch, I have to quickly erase it and switch my attention to something else. This involves a switch cost, right? this writing and rewriting. And sometimes, just like with a real whiteboard, we can't erase everything completely. And so, there's a residue. Mm -hmm. And so, let's say I'm reading the news and I read this very upsetting report and that stays with me and I'm trying to do my work and I still keep thinking of that upsetting reported interferes with my task at hand now flow which is the term that was coined by the psychologist mihaly csikszentmihalyi is really considered the optimal experience because people have just the right balance of using their skill and being challenged if you're challenged too much then it becomes overwhelming you can't be in flow if you're under-challenged, you're a little bored right so it really has to be at that sweet spot just that right amount
0: so does that mean there's an optimal amount of task switching you could have too little task switching and too much task switching and you want to like have that task switching mm-hmm. kind of challenge you but not be overwhelming
1: well most people don't report multitasking when they talk about being in a flow state mm. I really haven't heard that very much. Usually, when people get into flow states, they're doing some kind of activity that's inherently creative. So I used to be an artist, and I would regularly get into flow. I mean, I could expect to get into flow pretty much when I was in my studio painting. People who are dancers or play sports or music or have a hobby like woodworking, can get into a flow state. But, you know, in knowledge work, when people are shifting their attention, dealing with reports and email and other reports and phone conversations, they generally don't get into flow. Now, I've heard of some people have reported they get into flow if they're doing group brainstorming. Mm -hmm. They can have that experience. Coders, people who do complex coding report Getting into flow, gamers, people who do gaming where there's some skill involved, talk about getting into flow. But it's not a common occurrence at all for most kinds of knowledge work, and it doesn't mean it's bad. And I want to emphasize that no one should feel bad if they can't get into flow because you know we use an analytical mindset when we're doing knowledge work, and that can be very rewarding and fulfilling. So flow. It isn't for all situations or all settings. It can happen, but we shouldn't expect it in knowledge work.
0: One of the things that I talk about in my classes: there's people who say flow is great. There's people who say mindfulness is great. There's people who say brainstorming is great. There's people who say rumination is great, and I say, well, you got to mm-hmm. have, got to know what all of them are, and be good at all of them, and then figure out a way to get in there when it's appropriate. But I want to dig into, first of all, why did you give up art? It sounds like (laughs) you talk about it in the book, but it seems like, I mean, I hope you didn't give it up completely and that you can dabble when you want to experience it. And then I also want to maybe push back a little bit. I find that I can get into sort of a flow state, say if I'm preparing a lecture, maybe putting together a PowerPoint deck, I can really get into it. it. It takes a while, but I can get to a place where I lose track of time. And even when I'm just reading a book, you had this great example of someone who would jump on a plane and fly somewhere and then fly right back. And I remember during COVID, how badly I wanted to do that. I was like, i reading about the round trip tickets from Singapore to Singapore that they were doing in 2020. And I thought, why don't, why doesn't United offer that round trip ticket from San Francisco to San Francisco so I could bring a big stack of books because there's no Wi-Fi on there. And that's what I'll typically do when I travel internationally, is just plow through a huge pile of books.
1: yeah. yeah. Okay. So why did I leave art? Well, the reality of making a living hit me. (laughs) And I saw that most talented people who I studied art with ended up getting day jobs Mm -hmm. that were different than their art. And they justified it by saying, well, we have to make a living, but I'll do art in the evenings and weekends. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that I could be really passionate about during the day, not just relegating passion to evenings and weekends. And I was good in math and science, and I thought there are other ways to be creative. Art is just, that's one medium that allows us to be creative, but we can be creative in science. We can be creative in a number of different areas right doesn't just have to be art now the idea of flow yes of course it's possible if you're preparing a lecture and if it's a very creative endeavor then of course you might get into flow sometimes if a person is giving a lecture and you know really coming up with creative thoughts they could get into a flow state so of course it can happen but I just find in my life as a scientist, as a professor, I have to think very carefully about how I articulate language when I write. When I'm giving a lecture, I think very carefully about how I want to frame things. So I don't get into flow when I usually do my day-to-day job of being a professor. And again, it's not bad. It's extremely rewarding. But I can get into flow if I'm dancing or when I did art and even doing sports. Yeah.
0: Now, I think a lot of people who are advocates of attention, regulation, attention management, deep work, are somewhat skeptical about the value of things like social media and I think you have a much more nuanced view and you actually reference Maya Angelo and you talk about the big mind and the little mind and how you yeah. kind of have to mix them up and when you're talking about the little mind activities they're kind of like you know rote activities and they're actually they're pleasant and they're not necessarily bad for you right That's whether it's right playing solitaire or taking a minute off to, I'll sometimes take a break and do a wordle. Sometimes I'll go do a crossword puzzle. These are not exactly directly productivity enhancing, but one could argue that they are gonna ultimately make you more productive because you're recharging your brain.
1: Exactly. When I was studying attention, it occurred to me that attention has different kinds of states. And, you know, there's this idea that people are either focused or unfocused. Mm -hmm focus is good, unfocus is bad. Let's try to push ourselves to be as focused for as long as possible. So, when I was studying this, I realized that we can be engaged in something and challenged where we're using some kind of mental effort, and I call that a state of focus. We can also be very engaged in something with without hardly any mental effort, like when we play solitaire, watching a Netflix show. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. I call that rote attention. Mm -hmm. And so, we did a study where we sent people probes throughout the day and they had to answer very quickly two questions. How challenged were you? How engaged were you in the thing you were just doing, right? Being engaged and challenged is being focused. Being engaged and not challenged is rote attention not challenged and not engaged is bored mm-hmm. and being challenged and not engaged we call frustration like when i have a tech problem right
0: i love 2 by 2s that's my business so i love that
1: <laughs> yeah so you brought up maya angelo and oh my gosh it's such a beautiful example of this idea of how we switch between focused and broad attention so When Maya Angelou describes her work process, she talks about using her big mind for her deep thought and her creative work. But then she also pulls back and she invokes little mind. And little mind is what she uses when she plays crossword puzzles or when she plays small games. And she does this simply as a way to step back, replenish. Road activity can allow ideas to incubate. the back of our mind. So we're engaged with something. We're not really putting in effort, but the wheels in our minds are still turning and we can still come up with ideas. Doing some silly game, my, my favorite is a simple anagram game. You talked about Wordle. Going out on social media is okay too, but of course we have to be strategic. If you're a person who gets stuck in a rabbit hole and it ends up spending 30 minutes on social media. No, that's not a good idea, but if you're someone who can go on social media for five minutes, take a break, or you can play a simple game for five minutes, that's fine. The other thing is that our research shows that when people do these kinds of rote activities, it actually makes them happy, right? Because it's calming, it has this calming influence, and they're much happier doing that, than if they're doing focused attention. Why? Because there's stress involved in focus. We have to put in some effort. It's rewarding, right? It's good. But people are not don't feel as positive as when they're doing rote, simple activities.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it seems like drinking, right? And you know, I did a podcast on drinking and alcohol is sort of, you know, switching off your PFC. And it has to be done in moderation, right? There's a time and a place and there's a limit. And as long as you have your one drink or whatever, you're fine. But then when you're on your 50th drink, then, you know, you have a problem. And so I loved what you had to say about intentionality and time budgeting. So if you say to yourself, I'm going to spend 10 minutes on Facebook and you spend 10 minutes on Facebook, no big deal. But if you say, I'm just going to spend time on Facebook until I feel like stopping, then you may find yourself squandering a couple hours and then wondering where that time went. So is it really all about being intentional and not allowing your decisions to be made in the moment? I mean, in other words, can you trust yourself to know at what point it makes sense to stop and switch back to focus?
1: Yeah, it is about becoming reflective and more self-aware, of what we're doing when we're on our devices. And some people are better at it than others. If you're a person and you know, you tend to go down a rabbit hole once you start doing social media, then you've gotta put some constraints on that, set a timer.
0: You talk about hooks. I love the idea of a hook, it's great.
1: I use hooks, so if I just came out of a meeting and I'm pretty exhausted, I've got five minutes before my next meeting, sure, I will do some kind of road activity and the hook is that next meeting, because I know I have to stop, or if I'm on a subway or bus, right, and my stop comes up, that's the hook where I have to stop, or waiting room in a doctor's office, or whatever hook you want to devise for yourself. But ultimately, it is about being intentional with how we pay attention. And it's about gaining agency over what we do, because so many things we do are unconscious are automatic. And being intentional means to take these unconscious actions and to raise them to a conscious awareness. And what we do, then we can be reflective and we can be intentional and then we can gain agency over them.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering if at one point we will have quick books for our time. I teach finance. I always advise people, track every dollar that you spend so that at the end of the month, you can look and see where all your money went and ask yourself if it went to where you wanted it to go. Did you spend too much on this and too little on this? And then next month, you can try to adjust the dials. Well, when I ask people where did all their time go, I think most people don't really know, right? And so I think the first thing to do is start with awareness. And you talk about Albert Bandura. Now, here is someone that that I never knew about. So one of the mm-hmm. great things that I like about reading books like yours is that you introduce the readers to giants in their field that they may not have known about. So he has sort of a bunch of steps to become a more intentional person. And one is awareness. That's the first step. So maybe just talk a bit about Bandora and then about these steps and how they might apply to agency.
1: Yeah. So Albert Bandora was one of the great social psychologists. He actually passed away while he was writing the book. So I think it was twenty. 21 when he passed away. And he was a pioneer in the area of self-efficacy. So how people can really gain agency over their behaviors, how a person could stop smoking if they want, or stop substance abuse, or change some kind of negative behavior. And he did talk about different steps that a person can take to gain agency. The first one is this notion of intentionality. What I've tried to do is to take Bandura's theory, and I've tried to formulate that into something practical that people can use when they're on their devices. And I have this idea that I call meta-awareness, which is being aware of what you're doing, of your actions as they're unfolding so many things we do. We just don't pay attention to them. Grabbing our phone, what we see is an unconscious action. But we can learn to become more self-aware by probing ourselves. So I'm a professional observer of behavior. That's what I do when I do research. And if I'm observing someone, I'm always asking questions. Why did that person just do this action? Why did they switch screens? What's going on in their heads? I'm trying to understand that. And I realized that I could apply the same kind of reasoning to my own behavior. And so when I have an urge that I want to check news, and I'm a news junkie, I can probe myself, why do I have this urge to do that? It's usually because I'm bored or because I'm procrastinating. I just don't want to work on this thing right now. But it helps me become reflective and understand, okay, what do I need to do to make this less boring or to not procrastinate? Or I might probe myself and discover that I'm exhausted and that I really need a break, which is really important. Or if I do take a short break and say I'm reading the news, I can probe myself, does this still have value for me? And usually, you know, I might read the first paragraph of a news article, I get the gist of it. And then after that, I realize, I probe myself, ah, it's not providing me additional value. It's just a marginal return. So then it's time to get back to work. So that's the first step. Another step that we can think about is practicing forethought. Now, Bandura had a much wider time frame in view in practicing forethought. He was thinking about how current decisions that we make might affect us in the future. So I think a good time frame to think about when we use our devices is imagining how our current actions will affect our future selves, maybe later in the day, like 7 p.m., 10 p.m. And so if I have a deadline that I have to work on, say a paper deadline, and I know I'm someone that can get hooked on social media and go into a rabbit hole. I can visualize what I want my end of the day to look like. I want to be relaxing. I want to be feeling fulfilled and rewarded and watching my favorite show, reading my favorite book. And that visualization is powerful enough to keep me on track. So forethought is another very practical thing that can be done.
0: I mean, it's like, look, if you know you're going to go to the woods, then you put the anti-poison ivy stuff on or whatever. <laughs> you know, the anti-mosquito stuff. So if you know that you're going to be vulnerable to distraction, then you need to brace yourself for that and presumably do whatever you can to remove the distraction by shutting the device off or, or putting it in a container or placing it far away from you or whatever. That's sort of a meta-control. It's almost like acting paternalistically towards yourself.
1: That's right. And Bandura's third property is self-regulation. And for this, people might need a little bit of help. And so the obvious thing is turn off notifications, use ad blockers, get rid of all possible distractors that you're susceptible to. If you're susceptible to going on social media, take that app and bury it deep into a folder so that you're creating friction Mm -hmm. for getting to it. So it's not so easy. If you're someone who's so susceptible to checking your phone, leave your phone in another room or lock it in a drawer. So our self-regulation skills can use support, you know, a bit of scaffolding, unless you're a person who's born lucky with a trait of really strong self-regulation, in which case then it's very easy for you.
0: Now, can't you also architect your environment to facilitate things like multitasking? The example you used of the whiteboard, it drives me nuts sometimes when people will say, hey, have you done that thing yet? Right? Through an email. When if they presented me with a link to the current state of the job, then I could get up to speed very quickly. Or if you have that information and its current unfinished state, architected mm-hmm. in a way that you can see immediately where, you know, you need to resume, then you don't have to do as much reorientation. So, you know, are there ways that you can organize your workflow and the workflow of your teammates so that the frictions associated with multitasking are reduced?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's such an excellent point. Here's a good example. If you have an urge to check news, the simplest thing is don't switch your screen. Mm -hmm. Don't expect that you're going to switch your screen, go on a news site, And then if you're a person with poor self-regulation, don't expect you'll easily be able to come back. Have some restraint and don't even switch your screen. Close browser tabs. Browser tabs are visual cues that just entice us and lure us to go to different sites, change your screen environment, hide things like I mentioned hiding social media apps or any other kind of app that you might be tempted to use. Restructure your environment, even your physical environment. You know, if you have a magazine next to you, of course you're gonna be tempted to pick up that magazine and read it. So hide it, clean your plate so that you have this environment That's conducive for working and that you've just got your work in front of you on the screen.
0: Yeah, I used to always have to go to a library or to an office if I wanted to read a book. Of course, I've had to learn how to read books in other environments, but it's never quite the same as being in a library. You mentioned this term psychological homeostasis. And of course, that was a very attractive term for me. And it seems like, you know, you're referencing Very old fashioned ideas of balance, right? Just the Greek notion of proportion and balance and moderation. I never saw at any point in the book the use of the term virtue, but it seems like that's what you're talking about. Having a proper sense of how to orchestrate balance in one's attentional life.
1: That's right. Psychological homeostasis, that term has been around for a while. It's not been used referring to our digital world. There's also this notion of physical homeostasis in the body, Mm -hmm. where different systems in the body are well-balanced. When I talk about psychological balance, I'm actually talking about not being overly stressed, but just having enough stress or arousal that enables us to do our work. So, the autonomic nervous system Mm -hmm controls certain body processes. And we've got the parasympathetic and the sympathetic systems. And the parasympathetic system regulates what's called the rest and digest functions. The sympathetic system, this is the one that regulates the the fight or flight reaction. You know, if we think back from an evolutionary perspective, the bear is chasing you mm-hmm. and you've got this choice, do I stay and fight it or do I run? And this basically is what explains when our heart rate increases and we experience stress. And when we're multitasking, we're switching our attention, the sympathetic nervous system comes into play, right? And it dominates and it's creating stress. And so we need to think about what we can do, how we can change our actions so that the parasympathetic system, the rest and digest system has a chance to act. And one of the main points that I've tried to express in the book is that I'd like to reframe our thinking about how we use technology so that we really put well-being first. And technology has been designed to enhance our capabilities as humans, and it certainly does, right? We can produce information faster, more information. We have access to more information and people.
0: I loved your discussion of Vannevar Bush and the Memex and how hyperlinks came about. It was a really nice story. Yeah.
1: Let's think instead of pushing ourselves to the limits, which is what the current narrative is, let's use technology, be as productive as possible. Let's think about maintaining a balance, a psychological balance, positive well-being. Because if we're positive, we will be productive. And there's a psychological theory called the broaden and build theory, which shows that when people are positive, they have a wider repertoire of actions that they can do. There's They can make better choices, right? And we can be more creative. That's also been shown. And so, you know, let's not put the card before the horse, but let's think about maintaining well-being that gives us the resources and the energy so that we can be productive.
0: Well, so I'm guessing there's evidence to suggest that the degree to which people are in fight or flight mode is higher maybe now than it has been in the past. I haven't seen any real data on this, but there seems to be some consensus around this. And this kind of has puzzled me because... When you read about, say, hunter and gatherers who would stage a raid on the neighboring tribe and surprise them all at night and attack them and everybody's asleep in their beds, and yet all the people, I know tons of people in 21st century America who have trouble sleeping, and I'm trying to figure out, like, well, why would you have trouble sleeping? Like, no one is going to... Well, maybe in some parts of the country, but, you know, nobody in Palo Alto is going to like jump in your window and kill you. So <laughs> like, why are you in fight or flight? Why are you waking up in 4 a.m. and you can't sleep? Is there evidence to suggest that the kinds of media that people are exposed to, the continual assault of alerts and notifications and distractions, is that leading to a sort of perpetual stress on state of mind, even though these things aren't threats in any real sense?
1: Well, people are experiencing acute stress, right? When we're switching our attention so rapidly, there's periods of acute stress. And acute stress can become chronic stress when you experience it regularly. The other thing that's different from Hunter and gatherer times (laughs) is that people are a lot more sedentary. And in fact, we did a study in 2019, we looked at 750 people across the whole US for a year. We tracked them with sensors and found that during the workday, people spend 90% of their day sedentary. So it's not just that they're switching their attention and experiencing all this acute stress, but they're also sedentary. And so they're not working off the stress. And I know because I'm a regular exerciser, that's such a great way to work mm-hmm. off stress. So there's a lot of reasons. I mean, the scope of work has expanded. People have a lot more responsibilities. We're inundated with email and electronic communications. People don't detach from work. That's a big factor mm-hmm. in stress and affecting sleep is that we end the work day and at least we come home from our workplace, but our workday doesn't end until the time we go to sleep.
0: Well, you know, I always tell my MBA students that the reason why you get an MBA is to become more effective human beings, right? So that you can actually make a bigger impact and achieve more of your goals. And I think that a big important part of that is managing attentional resources. And so should we have a course that anyone who's trying to do anything practical in the world, should we have attentional gymnasiums? We go to the gym to bolster our physical fitness. But will we have chains of attentional gyms that we can send people to to kind of help them develop this attentional muscle?
1: Yes, the short answer is yes, we should. And people don't need to go to a gymnasium to do it reading books having an exercise of of reading a book every day being offline is such a great way to exercise our attention muscles so there's a lot of things we could do i would love it especially for young people if they could have the experience of building their attentional muscles because it's it's a lifelong skill and attention is really the currency of our time And we can't perform well unless we have good attention. Yeah, I'm all for exercising our attention, improving it.
0: Yeah, I have a friend who says all he wants is the freedom to do what he wants, when he wants. And it seems to me that if he's not being intentional about how he's spending his time in a very planned way, then he's just opening himself up to be controlled by others and have his attentional resources diverted by people with other agendas. So agency is critical.
1: Well, it is absolutely. I mean, not necessarily if a person doesn't have to worry about making a living and they really can decide where they want to pay attention, Mm -hmm. then that person certainly can do that.
0: Well, Gloria, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. The new book is called Attention Span. Thank you so much, Gloria. I appreciate it. Let's chat again soon.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. Yeah. Happy to talk